And welcome to the commentary box at Murrayfield. You'll already have sensed the quite unique atmosphere here in the heart of Edinburgh on what is a quite unique occasion, the first time in the history of rugby union that two home countries have met head-on for the Grand Slam. They've played internationals here at Murrayfield since 1925. But in all the intervening time, I don't think Murrayfield has ever buzzed with the same air of feverish anticipation as at this very moment, as one of the great sporting occasions is about to unfold. Welcome back to the Scottish Rugby Podcast, brought to you from uh, lockdown uh, once more. There is no actual rugby to speak of, so we are delving back into the uh, depths of history and racking our brains trying to think of uh, things we can talk about to keep you entertained during this uh, this rather strange point in history. Um, I am Cammy Black, as always, and joining me this week, I've got editor of the blog, Rory Baldwin. Hello. Um what we're going to do this week is we're going to take a look back at... Well, we were going to look back at Scotland's uh, Grand Slam in 1990, but there's only actually one game that's available on YouTube, Rory, which is the, which is the Calcutta Cup, so we're pretty much restricted to talking most about that. Most important one, yeah. Yeah, which is the most important one. So so we're going to talk about that. Um, we are doing... Uh, a number of other pods we've got, at least two more planned. Um, I think next week the aim is to talk about the best combined Calcutta Cup winning Scotland side since 1990s. So that'd be including players from 1990 up until, well, I suppose now. Do we do we include 2018 in or 2019 mm. in that? Rory, do you think? Does that? Well, I mean, the SR you've declared the club season null and void today, so that officially never happened. But I think they haven't said anything about the pro. I don't think a decision's been made about the Pro 14. Is that included in that decision? Mm, I don't think that's included. No, that's not included in that decision. So we'll assume Pro Rugby still exists and, yeah. Yeah. So you might have to... Well, I have to tweak tweak it a wee bit. I mean, I suppose if it's a draw, if if Scotland-England was a draw in 2019, do we include that, players that played in that in a potential Calcutta Cup winning combined 15 or does the draw disqualify them? If the, well, they won. Did they win the Calcutta Cup? I mean, technically they retained, they retained it. it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's your it's your it's your ball. You can make up the rules. I tell you what, if people get want to get in touch with us and let us know what they think about that, we could do with a ruling on it. So, if you want to get in touch with us, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Scott Rugby Blog or at Cami Black. We're on Facebook, uh, which is facebook.com slash Scott Rugby Blog, or if you search Scottish Rugby Blog, we'll come up. Uh, we're on Instagram too when I remember to update it. And like I said before, I'm mostly on there to stalk players and actually see what they're doing in lockdown. Um, it's mostly moaning about having to do walk bikes in their front room from what I can tell at the moment. And Ryan Wilson has some chickens. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, get in touch. Let us know what you think. Should we include the 2019 team in a in a combined Calcutta Cup winning uh, 15? We'll talk about that next week. We're going to hopefully get Gary Heatley on who's been on with us before to talk about that and then uh, the other one we've got uh, down the pipeline is we're going to be taking a look back at um, Darcy Graham's dad's uh, go on gladiators in the 90s just uh, maybe a, bit of a 90s nostalgia fest mainly because uh, that, that's what that's what most of us uh, remember we do the <laughs> just, so most of us were kind of like in our teens and and tens 
those of us that do the podcast. Um, so, 1990 then. I thought what we'd do, Rory, is we'll, we'll take a delve into the history books first. Yeah. See what was going on in the world. Give a bit of, I suppose it gives some context, historical context to the Calcutta Cup. Um, I haven't gone into the to the, the, the depths, the whole of the 1990 history because the Wikipedia page is quite long. I've just looked at, I've mainly looked at uh, February and March, which is when... Um, when the Calcutta Cup, well, when the Grand Slam would have been, uh, the, this Five Nations would be taking place. There's no mention of the Five Nations or Scotland's win uh, in notable historic events on that Wikipedia page for 1990, which is a shame. Yeah. Um, end of um, January uh, 1990 was the trial for the Exxon Valdez oil spill, which um, any geography student will remember studying during the 90s. Um Apartheid. Yeah, I did history. Yeah. Oh, you did it? Oh, well, if you did history, it wouldn't be there. Um, apartheid ended. Oh, well. Um, positive times. Well, it was the unbanning of the African National Congress and promised to release Nelson Mandela. That's F.W. de Klerk. Um, the uh, Communist Party of the Soviet Union voted to end its monopoly on power, so it was the breakup of the USSR. Um, Nelson Mandela was then released on the 11th of February. In Cape Town, um, there was German Germany German reunification. It was quite an exciting time. Yeah, actually, there's a there's a lot going on. Yeah, in this time, so it's it's not surprising. Mean, I can't remember this Five Nations, and it must have been around the time when I was getting into rugby because I I took it up short shortly around this. Well, I think around this time, maybe the season after this, I took it up. So something must have. I, I can only assume that I watched it and I was inspired to take it up, but it doesn't stick in the memory. As something, I don't have, seem to have any kind of memories connected with it. Yeah, I mean, I would have been 1990, I would have been 11 ish. Yeah. So, yeah, I wasn't, I mean, I, I played rugby a little bit in school, but uh, some, some way off uh, those days just yet. So, yeah, um, I mean, I, you can sort of remember the stuff about it. I can remember um, kind of. Uh, like yeah, my, my grandfather getting a Grand Slam tie and things like that. In fact, I've still got still got his uh, 1990 Grand Slam tie kicking about in a cupboard somewhere. Yeah, I think my uncle who listens to the podcast, Low Allen, uh, bought me a Grand Slam 1990 Grand Slam video. So I assume I got that around this time as well. Yeah, I remember having that kicking around the house for a while. The um, I remember all the history stuff. I remember German German reunification mainly because it was covered um on the Timmy Mallet show. They went and did a special Timmy Mallet show from Germany, really? from the from the Berlin Wall. Yeah. I don't know if they did a, a mallet's mallet with uh, helmet cool. That would have been quite something to see. Um, the pale they could blue... have used an actual sledge, sledgehammer and done some, oh, yeah. some wall breaking. I believe I think there may have been the may that there may have been uh, footage of Timmy Mallet breaking the wall down with with the mallet's mallet. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, the pale blue dot photograph um, was sent back from Voyager One as it as it completed its primary mission and left the solar system. Uh, it came back, of course, famously in uh, the first Star Trek movie, as as Vija. Ah, uh, right. Not not a good no. movie. It's not the best Star Trek movie. Um, let's have a look. What else happened? And so in, we're into March now. The Nintendo World Championships were held, um, and then there was a lot of poll tax riots. Essentially, for the rest of the month, there were just poll tax. Yeah, riots. I mean, going into the uh, you know, if you're reading the the the, the book The Grudge, which I think we'll probably touch on later. Um, the main gist of it is that, uh, yeah, there was a, there was an oppressive Tory government, and uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of anti 
anti-Thatcher feeling. I think is it, Tom Tom English sort of goes the pains to describe it as as such. Yeah, um, going around. I think that's it because it, it wasn't introduced in England and Wales. It didn't take effect in England and Wales until the first of April of nineteen ninety. But it had been trialled in yeah, Scotland it, beforehand Scotland with, the, with the guinea pigs, effectively. Yeah, I once heard tell of. I'm not sure if this is ever true. If it was an urban myth that I, my geography teacher told me that. Um, there was a man in Aberdeen who insisted on paying his poll tax in one penny pieces because it would cost the council more to process his payment than it would be for him to, to them, for them to actually yeah. receive the money. So they would lose money essentially by processing his payment. I'm not sure if that's just one of those urban myths that goes around. Could be. I mean, yeah, there are probably lots lots of people trying to find ways to ways to resist that that involves so much bureaucracy that they're unlikely to get called yeah. on it. Yeah, so I mean, a period, certainly a period of it's a period of political turmoil at the time. Um, in terms of now, this is depressing. People born in nineteen ninety, oh, uh, I know, um, are all you know, Margot Robbie, Emma Watson, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, Kristen Stewart, Liam Hemsworth. Um, I don't know what a Draymond Green is. I'm assuming he's a YouTuber. I've never heard of him. Uh, Iggy Azalea. Mm. She's a singer of some. Draymond Green uh, is a basketball star, according right. to according to f- the famouspeople.com website. Uh, Rita Oro, Ora. All right. Yep. No her. A man called the Weekend. That's his name. That appears the, to be the, the Weekend. The Weekend is that is that how I you pronounce no, it? I have no idea. No, it's it, they, apology. Just... Apologies, any sort of young impressionable cool kids listening to this. He's he's a Canadian. It's spelt. It's well. The is spelt the, but then the weekend is yeah. spelt week. Then and. Yeah, that's what. Uh, that's all I know about him. Is it? It's, but I don't know how it's pronounced. No. Um. Who else? Aaron Taylor Johnson, who played Kickass. Dev Patel. Yeah, these are all. Really, it's really depressing. Mario Balotelli. I'm get. I mean, this, the, we know for a fact. In fact, because you'd be essentially thirty. You're thirty, aren't you? So. It, yeah. It just, I think, to me, it feels impossible that those people were born in nineteen ninety. Yeah. So, who we, who are we talking from from our look? Um, yeah. So Finn Russell and all these boys have not yet been born. Hoggy. No. Greeks probably a little baby, a little baby in uh, in Jed. Sean Maitland still sat sat sucking on a on one of his granddad's scotch pies. Yeah, WP now would be a very rotund toddler in South Africa somewhere. Can you imagine w- <laughs> WP now as a toddler is a frightening thought? Yeah, he'd be like one of those, um, he'd be like one of these kind of egg toys with a weight in the bottom that just kind of rolls about. A weeble. No arms. I think they're called weebles, weren't they? That's probably some, nine. I think they probably were around in the 90s. Um Films of the nineties. It's according to IMDb. Top films of the nineties. Uh, Ghost. Okay. Uh, which uh, famous for a scene in which um, Demi is Demi Moore. Yeah, Demi Moore. Yeah, Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze do some pottery. They, well, no, they don't. In, it, it's actually Demi Moore and Whoopi Goldberg that do the pottery. Because that's, yeah, that's one of those th- things that you think exists, but it doesn't. Did it not? Did, I thought that he inhabited Whoopi Goldberg's body and then they did the pottery together. Well, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Is it some? I've 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 said that it's Patrick Swayze, and but it could well be Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg. Goldberg. And... 
I think in this in the in in the plot of the film, he inhabits Whoopi Goldberg's body and then does the pottery. So, in in essence, it is Whoopi Goldberg and Demi Moore that that make the pottery. Yeah, I mean all the. Uh... If you Google ghost pottery scene, there's no pictures of Ruby Goldberg, but there's plenty of Patrick Swayze with his top off. So, <laughs> yeah, you, you might be overthinking that one. Maybe the director's cut that in. Um, <laughs> Pretty Woman was number two. I've never seen Pretty Woman. I never want to either. Uh, good film. Yeah. Yeah. Number three, Home Alone, classic film. Classic. Yeah. Watched that recently. Um, number four, Look Who's Talking. Who's talking? I feel like I need yes. to revisit that. That would have been uh, when was Die Hard? Bruce Willis going back to comedy after Die Hard? I think so. Oh, no, because I think Hard. Die Hard Two came out in nineteen ninety. Yeah, Die Hard Two comes out in nineteen ninety as well. I think. Yeah, Die Hard Two came out uh, in. Yeah, it was released yeah, in Christmas so. nineteen ninety. So yeah, that'd be in between Die Hards for him. Yeah, so that was probably my introduction to Bruce Willis because I was too young to watch. Uh, I think the weird thing about that film, Luke is talking. What I remember is that, that there's that scene at the start where they're talking sperm, and I remember watching it when it came out. And I, for for a good few years after that, I believed that people got pregnant from kissing, because <laughs> that's the way that film makes it look. Yeah. Um, honey, I shrunk the kids. It's a good year for strong year for films. This. Yeah, the kids are kids are the kids are all right, as they say. Uh, Total Recall. Back, yeah, to the, back to the Future Part 3. Now, I, I think I went to see that at the cinema that year. Um, Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Mm. Not as good as Gremlins, but still... De- de- that's the one, is that the one where it breaks the, the fourth wall and the gre- there's a Gremlin movie produce- producer, I think? Yeah, because they take oh, control be. of a New York media mogul's high, high-tech skyscraper. All right. So, Die Hard with Puppets. Yes. Um, number 9, War of the Roses, which I've never seen... It's got... oh, that, yeah, that's a good good film. I think that's that you sort of you, you watch that expecting it to be romancing the stone part three or something, but actually Douglas Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner just spend the whole movie being quite horrific to each other. <laughs> Is that direct a... Danny DeVito directed that? Something like it's a, yeah, it's like the breakup of a breakup of a marriage. Yeah. But they, they take it literally. Uh uh Parenthood was the uh with Steve Martin and Mary Steenberg. Um, the Buckmans are. I don't remember this. The Buckmans are a Midwestern family, all dealing with their lives, estranged relatives, raising children, pressures of the job, and learning to be a good parent and spouse. Yeah, it's just one of those. Um, at the risk of turning this into a film podcast, it's just one of those films uh, where Steve Martin's and got a family and complications ensue. Yeah, um, there and probably then, is a plot, but pro- yeah. Um, Eleven, twelve, and thirteen, all classics. Dick Tracy, Die Hard two, and then Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Hero, yeah. Actually, yeah, the Hero Turtles was good. Now, I remember that. I don't remember the Grand Slam, but I remember recording like the music video or the 30-second clip that was on the breakfast TV show too, because I was mad about the Turtles. I got, I've got, I don't know if I've still got it, I got a, um, the, at one point they gave away free records on the front of packets of Frosties and you had to cut them out to play them and I had the Turtle Power record that you had to cut out a packet of Frosties and play it. Yeah, well, definitely not derail it by showing how much of the turtle rap I still remember. <laughs> um, in terms of in terms of the turtle rap, let's look at the uh, the top. We've got, we've got the top sing the best uh, top hundred singles. This is Elton John "Sacrifice" number one, Adamski "Killer," 
The Righteous Brother Unchained Melody, Sinead O'Connor, Nothing Compares to You. Um, now, number one at the time of the Calcutta Cup was uh, Beat It National featuring Lindy Layton, Dub Be Good to Me. It was a good weekend for a song. Um, snap, Partners in Crime did Turtle Power. That was the 10th biggest selling uh, song of that year. According to this, the um, England, England Yorda World in Motion song was uh, a big seller that year, but that can't be right. Because that was for the nine. Well, no, it was the nineteen ninety World Cup, wasn't Italia it? 90. Of course, it was. I'm thinking of the Rugby Gazzard World Cup the, the year after. Yeah. Um, yeah, another good year. B fifty two's Love Shack came out that, and so did um, D Light's Groovers in the Heart. Yep, uh, a good year for um, sort of backward looking perky pop. Yeah, the albums are well. The best albums. Are, these are just the best albums in terms of uh, ratings. Apparently, it's violated by Depeche Mode, which I don't. I think I've heard that. There's um, what else was in there? Goo by Sonic Youth. Yeah, grunge was just on the horizon. Yeah, I think it's that. It's in that 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 point between it being eighties and then early nineties grunge. Um, yeah, pills and thrills and Billy X by the Happy Mondays. Um, Flood by They Might Be Giants. Which I bought at the time, which is a very good album. Still, I listened to that recently. Um, so that was um, that was the that, that's that's it in terms of music. In terms of the TV listings for the day of the Grand Slam, this is a bit of an eye opener. Um, so this is on the Saturday. Now the only list I can't get the BBC One Scotland listings, unfortunately, because they don't have them on the BBC archive. They've only got them for BBC London. Um, so we're going to have to just they may for viewers in Scotland things may have been different. But it's 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 um, but but also but there may be some similarities. So it started with a half seven with with play days, and it was the Y bird stop. In play days in the morning, um, there was a Laurel and Hardy short. Um, the Tales of Rodent Sherlock Holmes, which I don't remember, which was a seven part costume drama starring Roland Rash. <laughs> okay. No, don't remember that. <laughs> no, I don't remember. Holmes receives a letter from Yorkshire. Is it the giant rat haunting the moors? So this was actually about uh, is the, the hound of the rolling rats take yeah. on hound of the Baskervilles. So they, they've they've uh, they've potted the entire Arthur Conan Doyle canon into a seven episode Roland Rat thing. I feel nice like that's for the other thing. podcast I do. I might try, try and track that down on YouTube. Uh, special guest was Molly Sugden, who is um, Miss Br- one of the. Is, I think she's in. Um, she she wasn't Mrs. Mrs. Slocum. That's it. In the uh, are you being served? She was eight thirty five a.m. Thundercats. Nice. Good Inter- intergalactic safari. Joe appears on the scenes with his robot mule, which seems like I think if you're going to build a robot out of any, of any th- kind of animal, a, a mule seems a, a pretty poor choice. Um. Yeah. But then you know they were space cats. Well, that's true, and also Lionel, I think, was was technically a child. Somehow his his. From what I remember, I've got the film on on disc somewhere that someone burned me, and I think it's, he's still a child when they arrive. Although he's a child, it's a bit kind of like Tom Hanks in Big, ah, okay. kind of scenario going on in that when they were all put to sleep in the space station, there was a problem malfunctioning with his pod. So that then makes some of the stories really weird when there's like romance and he's actually kind of a ten year old boy. Um, going live now. This sounds like something that the SRU would do now. Um, because the this week 
the the controller of BBC One, Jonathan Powell. This is your chance to call him on uh, the number and tell him what you think about television, which sounds like when the SRU do their podcasts and get Mark Dodson on to talk about corporate governance. Yeah. That going live was probably they probably had the clip of the Ninja Turtle movie. That that might have been where it was, yeah. Yeah. Um Vet Nigel Taylor has some unusual domestic pets, pot bellied pigs. They're uh, all the rage now. I know they are. Or well, they they were all the rage probably about five years ago when George Clooney had one. Maybe maybe that's when it maybe that's where it all started. Maybe George Clooney saw it on going live in, in nineteen ninety. Um twelve fifteen then, grandstand. Introduced by Des Lynham. It had a provisional. It had a provisional timetable because this was in the radio time. So, twelve twenty was rugby, which was highlights. Because then twelve thirty five is skiing. Then you had your football at ten to one. So that's pretty much a football focus. When we had uh, badminton, ice. You don't get see this is this should bring back grandstand. What an afternoon? Yeah, badminton one hundred five, one forty five ice hockey, two twenty five rugby, three fifty five football, four o'clock badminton again. 4.40 final score, and then, uh, well, yeah, the, so the rugby match that day was Scotland versus England. Commentators, yeah. Bill McLaren and Bill Bowman. And uh, the uh, band was from Wembley, which is the All England Open Championships. Well. Yeah. What a what a day. Um, the, um, let's have a look. It's, I mean, it is a, it's a fair point, though. There's a good mix of, good mix of sports in there, uh, and you do kind of, it, it's sort of... Uh, I think sport, sports uh, interest in sport probably probably died a little when they then they killed off grandstand and sort of split everything into its own sports, which I guess they needed to do so that everything didn't have to be on a Saturday for the TV. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it was good to just have a little bit. Although I can remember as a kid being kind of thinking, all right, get rid of the badminton. I want to watch the you know the basketball or the rugby or whatever was the, the one that I was interested in tennis. Yeah, but you—I don't know—you kind of like have a fleeting watch of it, so at least it pique your interest in a wider variety of sports because it was just on. Because well, I suppose it was only for, probably now you people would just turn over to something else on demand. You wouldn't sit and just have grandstand on yeah, in the background. Yeah, uh, it was it was a choice thing as well. There was no choice. So. Yeah, um, the news was presented by Moira Stewart that day. Still going strong. Uh, Twenty past five now. I remember this. This was the first ever um, episode of Stay Tuned. Do you remember Stay Tuned with Tony Robinson? Uh, rings a bell. He would go into the. He basically did a. It was like a, a, a series on the history of cartoons. So he'd show classic cartoons and then talk about the history of who'd made them and who did the voice of them. Um, we had an episode of the Flying Doctors after that. A car accident. Oh, yeah. A car like accident that. instigates an emergency flight. The driver is seriously injured, and a local woman claims there was also a little girl in the car. But where is she, and why isn't Drac- Jack interested in finding her? <sighs> Mm. Sounds that sounds mysterious. I but, vaguely remember having a crush on one of the flying doctors, one of the female flying doctors. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, I have vague memories of that. Um, eighteen thirty, which probably best less said about this. The better is Jim will fix it. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Simply says Jimmy Savile makes more dreams come true. Uh, we'll move on. It doesn't say what dreams he made yeah. come true that day. Um, five, no, I think I watched this next thing because I seem to remember that my dad let me stay up to watch this, which is uh, five past seven. The um, the network premiere of Flash Gordon, the Sam Jones Brian Blessed All right, Flash Gordon. Yeah. Um, do I remember that? I, I I I've got a feeling I stayed up for that. It'd be a fantastic film. If you've not seen it, kids, go go and look that out. Um, yeah, so that was pretty much it. Rory Bremner was on it like five past eleven, ridiculous time at night. Um, and there was some boxing on it. On the go, ten o'clock. Yeah, he was on the go with uh, just his normal. 
Uh, one of the writers was David Baddiel. Really? Which seems really weird. Um, and then some. Then 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 weather at one one twenty five in the morning. Then the telly went off. There used to be a point in the, in the day where there was just no telly on. And people don't yep. realize that they play the national anthem. And that was it. Did, did you have to salute it? I, I don't. I don't think it was necessary. Probably, well, probably... Uh, national anthems is, is interesting because I think was the nineteen ninety Grand Slam game not the first time that we used Flyer of Scotland? Apparently so. Now I was watching because I I watched the full game about a week ago, and so today I thought I was going to try and watch it back today, but I watched the highlights instead. And it, the one I caught on YouTube was. Um, they had interview. It was like a look back thing with Gavin Hastings and right. Will Carling, and and Gavin Hastings claims it was. But what's what makes me doubt it? Although I may be wrong about this, what I, what makes me doubt that that was a f- the first time is the fact that they the crowd shout gains two, and then when they say Proud Edwards Army, they shout the thing that everyone shouts out yeah. after Proud Edwards Army as well. Was, so which makes you think so, that yeah, been some collaboration, yeah. That didn't seem. There was definitely, yeah. There were too many people shouting that in the crowd for it to not have been sung before, and people have come up with it. So it may. Yeah, it I, I wonder whether it was maybe certainly going to. It's mentioned in the Grudge. I, I don't think it was the first time. Yeah, I mean, Wikipedia says it was the first time, but we know about Wikipedia. Well, yeah, unless it was the first. It can't unless it was the first five nations. Get because Scotland played France earlier that yeah. year, so presumably they would have sung it then. So first time at a Calcutta so, yeah. Cup match, but not. Did the they first. Ne- did they never do it? Did they not do both anthems always? Or I don't know. I don't know. Did they do? Well, yeah, I don't know. Well, they, they definitely there's no, sang. There's before. no mention of it. Yeah, there's no mention of the. There's not an index in the. So I'd have to read the whole grudge again really quickly to find out if <laughs> it's mentioned in there. Yeah, so, I'm going to assume they sang it before the France game. So yeah. yeah, but it is weird. Yeah, it's a very weird. I mean, the atmosphere. I think you would mention earlier today. I mean, the atmosphere is. And it's one of the things Bill McLaren mentions really early in the in the commentary is just how yeah. noisy it is, and you can just hear it building. Yeah, I mean, what I uh, liked about it. I mean, it might it might just be the way that they mixed mixed the microphones for a broadcast in, in those days or something. But it seemed like there was a seemed like there was crowd noise kind of going on consistently for. For a good long, a good long while, um, and you know the crowd never really let up in enthusiasm. Um, but then that's probably because the team didn't. Um, you know that Scotland were just they were. You could see the team were definitely, definitely up for it that day. And uh, yeah, they they kept sort of kept harrying and and pressing England. And you know that's that as we know from watching the game today. If if your team look up for it, then it's a lot easier for the crowd to get behind them. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing as well is that for all people say, you know, whenever people talk about booing, it's always, oh, Bill McLaren wouldn't like this. But again, in the opening kind of thing, he says, oh, and some good-natured booing as well as England walk out. So he can't be, I don't don't think we can say that Bill McLaren was 100% anti-booing. Yeah, um, he did, Yeah, he does mention that. And I mean, there was there was plenty of uh, booing in the place kicker. He doesn't, he doesn't say anything. No, yeah, exactly. The um, So the Scotland, to get here... Scotland had beaten Ireland away 10-13, beaten France 21-0. Again, again, a narrow uh, win against away to Wales 9-13. Um, and then they'd 
the well, and then came the Calcutta Cup match where they the one thirteen seven that we'll talk about in a moment. The, the that little clip I was watching before I came on the the highlight thing was I think it's mentioned in the grudges that Gavin Hastings was saying Scotland took the decision not to speak to the press at all before the game because I think England had a month between their last game and the Calcutta Cup. Yeah, the schedule wasn't. Uh wasn't quite as compressed as it is, it is now, so there was a lot lot more time uh, between them. And I think, I mean, reading certainly reading reading the grudge um, and the interviews with with Will Carling and stuff, you know, he had a pretty torrid relationship with the, the media as well, and you know that would continue for a while. And so, yeah, I think to a certain extent, sometimes the media were putting words into the mouths of the the England players, but it kind of it played right into the kind of the 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 age old trope of of English arrogance, and I think the the Scottish boys probably just thought, right, well, we'll just let them, we'll just stay out of it and let them let them get on with it. Um, kind of like almost everybody when Warren Gatlin or Eddie, Eddie Jones start throwing silly grenades about, you just you don't retaliate, you just let them let them look silly. Yeah, I'm not because it's interesting. I think you couldn't a hundred percent get away with that these days because that was in the day where the days probably before i mean i, I would doubt the siu probably even had a, a press officer yeah at that point so you would just presumably just journalists kind of working proper kind of shoe leather gumshoe style tracking players down getting their home phone numbers and ringing them for a chat rather than sort of it all being pre-arranged and um you know, you know, done done via an, an intermediary or agents or anything. It was literally who you knew and picking somebody up and having a chat. So, I don't think you could do that because, well, probably now they're they're contractually required by the competition organisers to put people up for the press now as well. Yeah, uh, I would imagine. I'd imagine so. And it's all yeah, it's also organised. You know, everyone gets an equal amount of press kind of availability and. Yeah, they did. The, the, these sort of things would be these days. You would you wouldn't be able to to get out of it. I mean, you could still you'd still show up and give the kind of lip service quotes that some players do. But um, yeah, I can. You you wouldn't be able to do what what they did there. Yeah, um, and then the fame. I mean, the, we'll, we'll, I was going to. I've asked you to kind of come up with your big five t- kind of takeaways from the game. I mean, we probably worth talking about the slow walk. The one takeaway for me is there's someone smoking a. Smoking a cigarette in the dugout as they walk past him. <laughs> yeah, those those were different times. Different, yeah. Um, it's probably and yeah, he's probably the he's probably a strength and conditioning coach or something. <laughs> be, yeah, the nutritionist. Yeah, um, yeah. It was. Uh, I mean, it, you know, the, the game's probably going to be remembered for two things in terms of the kind of rugby zeitgeist or the Scottish rugby zeitgeist, and it's going to be the slow walk and it's the Tony Stanger try. Um, yeah, I mean the the slow walks, uh, an interesting one. It's 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 funny seeing them in the tunnel because obviously the tunnel was narrow, so you'd never put them side by side now, uh, in you know in a tunnel that size. Um, obviously, it's a lot wider these days, and they could stand side by side and they run out at the same time. But before it was kind of one at a time. It was interesting seeing um, the expression on Brian Moore's face. I don't know if you caught that when he ran out. He sort of um, had his stuck his tongue out in a kind of. Haka grimace. He was obviously clear, clearly fired up for it. Yeah, um, which is a, a contrast because you can see how sort of shell shocked and gutted he looks when you see them coming coming back in the at the end of the game when the crowd came crowd came over and you know because there was a pitch invasion that it, it was um, 
you know, they, everyone was mobbed, so they actually, you know, they did the kind of the honor guard thing, the lines that the, the players do. Um, they kind of did that in uh, in the tunnel. So, you know, there wasn't, again, there wasn't much room to, if you weren't feeling it, to get past the kind of pats on the backs and stuff. But actually, a lot of them had, um, had gone on the gone on the the Lions tour in 89, I think. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some of them were, were reasonably reasonably good mates by that point. So there's a lot, I mean, I think there was a, there's a lot made out of the, the kind of, uh, the kind of, the anti-Thatcher sentiment and the, and the, you know, the, the old enemies and stuff like that. But I think, I mean, certainly they were giving it, they were, you know, they were giving it uh, hell for leather on the pitch, but I think there were, there's certainly a, a kind of measure of respect there for, for some, if not all. Yeah. I mean, well, was it um, John Jeffrey and um, was it Pro- Jeff Proven had, had kicked the car cut a cup down Princess street or Rose street two years before that on a, on a night so, out. Yeah. So yeah, I might be and the pun- punishments dished out. Yeah, so it's not even. Yeah, it's not. Uh, yeah, when you read the book, what's interesting, I think, is just how friendly they all were and how much they, you know, most of the team knew them. I think Brian Moore went to. I want to say Watsonians. I may be wrong on that, and someone will probably correct me. Um, I'll probably get a letter about this now, but I think he went to the Watsonians clubhouse the next day after they lost yeah, the grand slam. After they lost Cup. I don't know if it was a bet or if it was just a kind of arrangement, but. Um, yeah, there was. Uh, he'd he'd uh, agreed to uh, agreed to do that. I think and, in the uh, in the grudge, he says he, he agreed to it, thinking they were going to win. But he still, yeah. but everyone said, "Well, you know, fair play to him for still making the the engagement." Which, yeah, that's the interesting thing about that the the book. I think though, and we, we yeah, it was what, what's on the end, it was yeah. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. I'm pleased. I'm, I'm right about that. Um, the um, was was. I think there's nobody really comes out of it as uh, there's no really big bad in it, is there? Yeah, I mean this is interesting because there is. I think you know the movie rights have been sold or something we heard, and it's something that I've been knocking around with Ian, uh, kind of joking about uh, how you'd write a movie of that. And actually, when you read it, you sort of the impression you get following the reading of it is that it's an incredibly cinematic thing, but. Actually, you'd have to make some fairly big leaps in order to, to to make it what, what you know, what the film industry would consider consider a filmic story. Um, like you say, you'd have to probably amp up the characters of, assuming you're taking the Scots as the uh, heroes, <laughs> amp up the characters of of Carling and Moore into sort of caricatures. Um, and actually, what's quite interesting is, you know, they've been seen that way north of the border for for quite a while, but. Um, the, the book does go a, lo- a long way to kind of uh, to alleviating that and actually showing so- some of what was actually going on in- inside their heads and the reasons for some of the some of the things that they maybe came out and said or did. Yeah, I think the, the way I've always seen it or, or, or read it in terms of the, the book is that the within the England camp, Carling and Moore are kind of the... They're the ones that saw it coming. Mm. Certainly, Brian Moore kind of... Was of the view that the rest of the squad weren't taking Scotland as seriously as they ought to have done. I suppose you could almost present it from that way that they were the they were the ones that were taking it seriously, and everybody else thought it was going to be a formality. I mean, yeah. there's probably a human there's probably a human story in there. I think Ian McGeekin' story particularly is kind of the sacrifices that he makes to get up mm-hmm. from Leeds to 
coach Scotland and the fact he's you know he on the verge of losing his job at various points. You know, is a real yeah. that that's kind of and then the the little bit that Tom English was talking about where I think the the leader of the band that were playing that day walked up to him just for kick off and said, I, "I went to school with your dad." Yeah, it's just an unbelievable coincidence that to, for that to happen on that day. Yeah, I mean it's that that that's fair. Um, there's probably a it's probably more that this would be a good uh, this would be a good scene in a mini series about Geech's career because yeah. uh, that would make a long possibly a more satisfying story. Um, but, I suppose. Uh, the, yeah. Well, the one big bad I suppose in it is probably Jim Telfer. Yeah, I mean there there is, there is that. Um, it was interesting because uh, somebody, I think on Twitter, we posted up that this we were doing this, or I think it was maybe actually it was just the Polaris, the guys that published the the thirtieth anniversary edition of the Grudge, has suggested reading, and somebody had said, "Oh, I, I can't, uh, I won't, I won't be uh, watching that again," um, or some words to that effect because of Jim Telfer came across as such a horrible bully and he lost all respect for the man. Which is interesting. I mean, I think he, I don't think he was a, a Scotland fan, but um, it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting point that one of the probably one of the uh, I don't know one maybe not the takeaway from from watching the match itself, but uh, a takeaway from from reading the book is would those methods you know the, the methods that Telfer used would they work these days on professional rugby players? And the answer is probably no. No, no. I think you're probably right. I think you he couldn't do that now because I don't think anybody would stand for it and there's probably rules I mean the, the human rights acts in now yeah. for, for for a starter but I don't I don't I think there's there's certain things you can look at and say like his preparation the fact that he rehearsed every speech beforehand things like that, that I, I take away you, think, well, yeah, you could apply that elsewhere and it's 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 a good takeaway but I think the way that he treated them although you know he does say he treated them that way because they were worth it yeah i mean there's i think there's a few guys i think it's uh kenny milne the hooker who's still kind of doesn't doesn't really um i think it was him didn't really see the see the point of it and didn't think that it actually worked on on them there were some that could sort of see that it worked on the other players but didn't feel that they were and kind of maybe wondered why he didn't try a different approach with them um, there seem to be certain, yeah, I mean, uh, like the stories of them splitting, splitting each other. Uh, the, the back row would would sit apart; they would sell, uh, socially distance from each other in the uh, team meeting, <laughs> in order that he couldn't he couldn't pick them out and give them the hairdryer treatment as a unit. Yeah, and I think Derek White talked a lot about. I think in the the grudge, Derek White talks a lot about him getting it yeah. worse because he said that Telfer viewed him as being lazy. Or oh, that was yeah. the impression he gave, but I, it's it's an interesting thing. He's not. He strikes me. He's not. He's not a, a man that suffers fools gladly, and he's not somebody that, that, ever, that who giving out praise comes naturally to, or or thinks yeah. that probably because he's not. He, he doesn't seek it out himself, mm-hmm. and so probably you know. I think if you if, if you're not somebody that seeks out praise yourself, or or, or I don't know, sort of some sort of just. Uh, reassurance if that's not something that you need in your life then it's probably hard to understand how others might respond to that yeah which i think it was probably a perfect storm 1990 in that it worked yeah 
in that context. But you can see probably there's the Lions document. Was it the ninety seven? Yeah, ninety seven. The ninety seven Lions too. He's he's a different coach at that point because yeah, he's still I getting think... even the the Everest speech everyone talks about. When you see him delivering it, he's not. It's you know he's not got guys pinned up against the wall spitting in their faces. It's yeah, he's he's kept the best bits of of the the stuff that that worked and kind of maybe softened some of the edges that don't work in uh, a prof- professional environment because the game was on you know on the verge of professionalism by that point. Yeah, and he's um, I mean he's so still there. I think he was still coaching youth rugby at Melrose up until very recently. Yeah. So yeah. I think the things that he did in 1990 he couldn't do now, but I don't necessarily think that he would do them now if if he had his time again either. Yeah, I mean, you, you, yeah, you don't you don't really know. Um, he, he probably would say say that he would. You'd imagine. I the, I mean the, the only I suppose the only kind of modern parallel you might draw is would be Richard Cockrell, who I don't think he's probably in that he's straight talking doesn't put up with any. Doesn't strike as the kind of person that, that puts up with crap, and doesn't. I think would be slow to kind of praise players unless what they've done is exception. You know, was kind of yeah exceptional. You know, he, he's not. I think he's not the kind of person that's going to praise someone for doing their job well. He'll only kind of talk somebody up if if what they're doing is excellent and consistent and, yeah. and consistently excellent. Because even I think when Darcy Graham and Blair Kinghorn have been playing well. He's always kind of been keen to say, well, they need to do it every week. Yeah, he's not one for um, blowing smoke, as they say. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I suppose a guy like that's maybe the, the modern equivalent. And it is, you know, it's something that's often talked about in this Scottish game when we've seen the Scotland team in recent years go out and not look like, they, not look like they're, they're giving it 100% or not look like the attitude's there. And, and as it turns out, it's probably... A little bit more in the case that it's preparation or um, you know something like that, rather than necessarily not being up for it. I mean, um, but but one of the calls you always hear, and one of the reasons a lot of people like Bern Cotter is that you know they say you want a sort of stern, a stern bugger who's going to put a rocket up up their backsides, and that's basically because the kind of gold standard of that that character, that archetype in Scottish rugby is Jim Telfer. Yeah, I suppose it's imposing standards at the end of the day, isn't it? That that's still and and that's we've talked about that a lot this season um, with Finn Russell. But there was the, you know, the, the the Jim Hamilton kind of when he was talking about with the, the when he left the Scotland squad and and how he didn't really get on with Vern Cotter was because yeah. he couldn't get along with some of the really strict boundaries that Vern Cotter was was putting in place. I think we've heard that. Vern Cotter and the coaches kind of understood the need for players to let loose, but it was within the boundaries and, and the rules that they set, and they were taken very seriously. And any breach of rules was taken, you know, as, as that seriously as well. Because I think Jim Hamilton talks about the rule was that if you came down in the morning, you had to shake everybody's Shaking hand. hands. Yeah, and there was a bug going round, and, and then Jim Hamilton refused to shake hands, and Vern Cotter kind of had him up against the wall saying. You shake everybody's hand, yeah, and wouldn't have the boat. You know the fact that you know half the squad were on the toilet constantly yeah. wasn't a reason not to shake hands. So, Very yeah. French, yes. Um, the in, in terms of the game, then what what have you kind of what what we, what was your takeaway from it then? Um, well, I mean, uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting watch because 
you know, you read the certainly you read the the bit in the grudge before it gets to the game in the England. The you know the England players talk about the games they had against France and Wales, and you know it sounds like it sounds like a war. Some of those games, um, uh, you know, in terms of physical violence, um, and it was interesting that there's probably a little bit of that in in this game, but actually by and large it looks pretty much like a, a game of rugby. Um, almost, you know, that we would recognise. Obviously, there's a lot of differences. Um, but yeah, it, it, I was actually quite. I mean, it's been a while since I'd I had watched it before, but it was it was been a while since I'd watched it, and yeah, I was quite surprised by how uh, how familiar it was. Um, especially, there was a bit too much kicking. Um, there was uh, England had a brutal number eight ball carrier in uh, Mike Teague although uh, Gary Armstrong still managed to get get him to the ground uh, the kicker was keeping Scotland in the game Craig Chalmers yep and there was a there was a there was a full back filling in at standoff quite a lot Gavin Hastings took a lot, took a lot of the clearance kicks from uh, at 10 I'm not saying that's an evidence to support a hoggy 10 theories but um, I'm pretty sure Bill McLaren even called him a standoff half once <laughs> yeah, I mean it's. It, I think we, John and I talked about this when we we reviewed the nineteen ninety one semi final before the world last World Cup, and it is. I think you're right. This this game looks more like a game of rugby than other games you might watch from yeah. the time. Is there is there seems to be a game plan in some attacking shape. I don't. There's no there's no defensive structure to 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 speak of. Scotland just seems to be. Sort of doing nothing but scramble defense. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of scramble, scramble defense. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it was. Uh, I, I mean, I quite, I don't know if you know. As I say, you've said it's maybe not representative of games of of that era, but I actually quite liked it. I mean, it wasn't, you know, by no means was it a game of sevens in terms of how loose it was, but um, the defense wasn't monopolizing the direction of the game. Yeah, it it was a. I mean, you know, Scotland were maybe kicking a bit more. England were running it maybe a wee bit more. But it wasn't about right. Let's just tackle and tackle and tackle and then wait for someone to make a mistake. I mean, there yeah, there were knock-ons and people dropped the the ball in in the contact quite a few times in you know crucial scoring positions. But again, a lot of these guys weren't. Uh, you know, the, the, this was before professionalism, so. You know they wouldn't have had as long developing their skills as, as your your you know the modern equivalent if you like. Yeah, and I think the other thing is there's no substitutions allowed except for injury. Yeah. So their conditioning, I mean that the pace. I mean what we said this when we did the 1991 look back mm-hmm. is the the pace the games played at and the fact that these guys are on the pitch for 80 minutes is. Yeah. It's hard to imagine a modern professional player, even the fittest, most fittest professional player you can possibly imagine right now what's that simon berg in the world fittest prop I can't break it down. <laughs> you know it's hard Not to imagine sure it it's hard to imagine that a rugby player now even the fittest being able to last 80 minutes in a game played at that pace yeah i mean uh, my my kind of takeaway one of, another one of my takeaways was they had a lot of the, they looked a lot older yeah. Like rugby players now look kind of young, but I mean, you look at, at like Finn Calder and JJ and these guys, 
and I mean, Craig, yeah, Craig Chalmers looks quite quite young, and Will Carling still looks quite young. But they all, I mean, the guys who are at the top of their game who aren't aren't just sort of recent additions are, you know, they look like they're in their their forties or something. And I, I mean, when you know when Finn Calder takes his top off down the tunnel, you can see that he's clearly, you know, he's got the body of a young man but the face of an old man. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, the the kind of the relentless pace that that game, and I think that was probably the key, you know, that was Telfer's approach, and that was the the, the key to, to beating England is just keeping them under relentless pressure, not giving them space to kind of establish to get their pack motoring. Um, and it did seem, I mean, it seems a lot line out drives and and scrums and things. It seemed a lot easier for a team to get, you know, you could get momentum in a mall and push it a lot quicker. Um, Everything just seemed seemed faster. You know, it was more it's more entertaining. They weren't sort of standing about waiting for something to move. You know, you could just no, two or three guys would pile in. And suddenly, the whole thing's on the move. It was great. And the, yeah, well, there, there was the um, I think there was the point where it was a Rob Andrew does a long clearing kick right down to the corner, um, where and, and Scotland have the line out right on the try line, which you don't get anymore because it's normally like even if you kick right into the corner, you're always like what five yeah. meters out, aren't you? The right, the right on the Scotland line, and um, I think it's um, take Scotland take it over their own line, and there's a five meter scrum. But rather than, which seems like there's just no game management at all, because rather than kind of Scotland like someone go down to check the studs and someone else go down t- to get a drink of water or something, both teams straight away there's eight men for two two eight men packs formed. They're down for a scrum and the game's played on. Just, yeah. it's just there's no port, there's no waiting about, no messing around. No, it's um stuff like that is great when you see it. I mean there was still there was still a bit of messing about in the scrums. Um there was a couple of reset ones, maybe not as uh maybe not as uh as many, but um yeah, I think uh the the pace the pace of it was was one of the, the things that, that impressed me. I mean you look at like Finlay Calder, the way he played that game, that's your kind of prototype Hamish Watson, really, isn't it? Um, you know, that that's the same, that's the kind of style that Mish would aspire to, I would say, is just, you know, carrying the ball hard into contact, keeping the pace up and tackling everything that he can with obviously a bit more of the breakdown. I mean, the breakdown's a completely different animal now. Um, there's no... I mean, there was one. There was one scrum that the scrum David Saul went collapsed in the scrum and then instantly got a shooting from his opposite number, who who got talking to from the ref, admittedly. But uh, you know, that sort of thing definitely doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, I think it's it's weird because at the end of the game, uh, Finley Caller says that's that's it, I'm done. But then he went on to play in the nineteen ninety one. I think he was he was kind of like dragged back out of retirement to to yeah. play in the in in nineteen ninety one as well because he was thirty two. I've worked out 32 I think in 1990 and um, John Jeffrey's 31 yeah I mean they don't like you said they look like they're both in their 40s yeah but... I mean if you look like um, Greg's 34 yeah and he looks like he could have been one of their kids <laughs> yeah and Greg doesn't look like a man that moisturises no no Um. Yeah, it's it is a strange one, isn't it? Because I mean, the, the 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 although it looks like the I think the although the backs play and some of the, I mean certainly the try is something that you would see Scotland try now essentially. Do you know, quick pass from yeah. the base of the scrum, Hastings kicks forward and you 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 get a tall winger to chase it through and and dot yeah, it down. Yeah, I mean probably it would be like it would be a it would be a grubber, probably a a, a player. A player earlier, 
rather than try and get outside the guy and then kick it as last resort, he'd probably they'd probably try and do it through. But yeah, you can see you can see Scotland playing that. Where they you could probably mm, I don't I don't know whether you'd see England like um, Guskett's try in the first half mm. was is superb, but I don't know if that's sort of archetypal England. But certainly it was archetypal England for that England with the uh, with uh, Carling and and Guskett. Um, my my takeaway from from that was that. Uh, you know that was a superb try, but if we did, you know, if we'd been writing a match report on that for the blog, then the, the commentators would all have been moaning about Scott Hastings shooting out the line and missing the tackle, <laughs> and then <laughs> Gavin Hastings never shoot a bot Gusket's dummy. Although, you know, to be honest, he was ne- he was never stopping Gusket at that point. No, it was the world's slowest dummy, though. To be fair, yeah. Um, the, I mean, the interesting that that's something that I think when we I can't remember we were um, I think it was when after I interviewed Tom English. The someone popped up in my mentions to talk about ask if the grudge mentioned the incident between Scott Hastings and Jeremy Guscott during the match. It does, I and think. Yeah. It does, yeah. Where um, Scott Hastings racially abused him, and Guscott claims not to have heard it, but I think I've read subsequent articles that said he did hear it. But he he was friends with Scott Hastings, and yeah. kind of knew the 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 red mist that Hastings got into before any game. And Scott yeah. Hastings himself talks about that. He says, I, I, "I don't, I don't remember games I go and play in because the red mist kind of just descends and he, he's off," which isn't to excuse the behaviour. It's just he, he, it's not representative of who he is off the pitch. Yeah, I think, um, you, you know, it would probably you wouldn't necessarily recognise it from the Scott Hastings that we see in the, in the media today. But uh, yeah, the, the the kind of description of him. From himself and from his from teammates, yeah, he got he got pretty hyped hyped before a game. You know, he would be, I guess, in in the sort of way that people imagine Brian Moore as well. He would be kind of hitting his head off walls and that sort of you know kind of uh, physical self abuse. Yeah, like. which is strange because I don't think you, you I don't think what well, probably it probably well I know it still happens in France because it was a good uh, Jamie Lyle was retweeting an article he'd done with Luke Hamilton I think about a year ago when he left Edinburgh where he said when he went when he was playing in the D2 in France someone had grabbed him to one side just before kickoff and said sit down in the changing room and he and he hadn't realised why but he sat down anyway and said then the forwards just started smashing their heads off one another yeah but yeah, I would that, you, that sort of thing. yeah that kind of behaviour now would be picked up on and you'd, you'd be have a long session with a sports psychologist these days. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, do you, what did I have as well? I, I, I mean, I mean, Bill McLaren, I think, is still unsurpassed in terms of commentary. Yeah. There's uh, the what a wonderful bit where he he described one of um, Craig Chalmers' kicks as uh, it looks so inebriated as it went over. You thought it would have keeled over. <laughs> yeah. He really he went for his metaphor and and he and he lived in it. Yeah, I like. Um, the, I mean, well, yeah. Well, so the other thing is, everyone, um, everyone always talks about him saying, "Oh, you know, Bill McLaren. He was never biased. He was always straight down the line." But after after Tony Stain just scores a try, he says he's played centre for Hoyk most of the season, and I can <laughs> tell you they'll be celebrating in Mansfield Park, my hometown, this evening. <laughs> Which, yeah. I mean, it was lovely. It was a lovely touch. But yeah, I mean, uh, you, yeah, you could. Uh, uh, Bill Bowman was the the co commentator on that as well, and I mean. Um, just probably what my my other takeaway would be the uh, the famous danger try that may not actually be a try 
can you imagine like if if that had been against Wales and Jiffy was the co-commentator? Yeah. He would never have just not even mentioned the fact that it didn't look like it had been grounded. I mean, I, I wonder whether they had the playback monitors and stuff that the commentators have these days. Maybe they didn't have a TV screen. There's certainly no, there was certainly no big screen at Murrayfield in, in those days. To, so you're never quite sure if they would see the see the angle. I think it's probably just that thing that the referee is the sole judge of fact. So once he's awarded it, there's no there's no quibbling. And that was probably still quite a ingrained thing in in Bowman, who wouldn't have been wouldn't have been long retired by that point. Yeah, I know that's the thing. I mean, he's probably doing question of sport at that point with Emlyn Hughes. I think that'd be that that point in his career. Certainly, um, pre pre kind of like hanging out at the buffet, World Rugby buffet. Um, yeah, yeah. But I mean, because the other thing was, like you said, it, the the referees are sole arbiter, but the the touch judges were getting involved a couple of times. But the ref. You know, nowadays you see the the touch judge come onto the pitch and kind of meet the referee halfway for a chat, but like the referee was like probably having to yeah. run off the pitch to go and speak to the touch judge, like they weren't allowed on the pitch at all. Yeah, and uh, yeah, they stayed stayed the teams both stayed on the pitch at half time, I think as well. Did they? The, the, well, I think the, the the video kind of cuts, but certainly when when the whistle went, they weren't running back to halfway, where I'm presuming the. Uh, you know the the tunnel entrance would be. Yeah, they they seem to be congregating just on the other side. So yeah, I think maybe they they did uh, stay on the pitch at that point. Was it? Did you have anything else? Uh, not really. That if there's some interesting stuff in uh, the book uh, behind the thistle, written by um, David Barnes, who uh, founded the Offside Line website, and uh, Peter Burns, who I think is the, the same publisher of the Grudge. That's got some interesting stuff in. If people are looking for. Looking for some some lockdown reading. That's a pretty good uh, good hefty book about Scottish rugby. And there's some there's a debate in there as to whether Stanger scored it or not. But he maintains that it was definitely a try. Yeah, I think that's yeah. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because he he's tall enough to grab it, but there is like you said, there's no reverse angle or anything to show what. Yeah, well, what there. Happened. I mean, the, the, yeah, there was a there's a there's actually a shot in the in the one of the replays because I was about to I was writing in my notes no reverse angle, so obviously it's about as bad as. Like the uh, the old nine lines tour and the South African TV wouldn't show um, the gouging that went on in like the first minute of the, the second test. Um, but uh, actually, no, there was there was a, an angle from from head on effectively, and you can see that he he probably gets a hand on it, but it did look like he might have knocked it on a wee bit. Yeah. The other thing, because the one I watched, because it's not on the full match one, um, but this this explains a lot is. Do you know who did the post-match interviews in the Scotland dressing room? Um, no, I didn't see. That they didn't have that on the telly. I'm going to hope it's Doogie Donnelly, but probably not. No, Doogie Donnelly was covering something else that day. It's even better than that. It was John Inverdale. Really? A young John Inverdale, yep. He, he might have been a respected journalist at that point. <laughs> he may well have been. I can only think that the fact that... Because he's in there and the, the whole team are singing Flower of Scotland. Um he does. There's a couple of absolute. There was a real classic Inverdale moment where, because it was Jim Telfer's birthday that day, yeah. and you could even at that point, um, John Inverdale's done no prep because the entire Scotland squad starts singing "Happy Birthday" as Ian McGeekin and Jim Telfer walk in, and uh, Inverdale just goes, "Oh, and here comes Ian McGeekin. Happy birthday, Ian!" And then <laughs> Ian McGeekin obviously has to have a word with them. And they all said, happy birthday, dear Creamy. And then he, <laughs> to, and he has to kind of correct himself on air. Um, but you can see he's visibly uncomfortable the entire way through that. So I I can only imagine that was such a psychological trauma for him. That explains it. That explains everything since that date. 
but yeah, he's still got the full. He's got the mullet. Younger, yeah. much younger man at the time. But yeah, that's on the. It's on the highlights. Uh, if you find the highlights video, it's on there. He's in there with the whole, the whole team. Finn Calder's got an England shirt on. Yeah, they they all swapped in. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll try and we'll try and put the uh, put the links up on the on the the blog post for this afterwards. Yeah, so you can have a look for yourself. Um, I thought we'd do because I was going to kind of talk about the aftermath of this and and where Scotland went afterwards. Um, do you a quick game of of play your play your Five Nations right, Rory. Yeah, go for it. Um, so I'm, I missed out. So in 1991, Scotland were third in the Five Nations. Okay. So 92 higher or lower than third. 92. 92. Um, you can stick as well as the other. Higher, lower, stick. I'll go lower. No, stick. Third again. Stick. <laughs> 1993. Higher or lower than third or stick? Higher. Yes, second. Yeah. Second in 93. 94 then, higher or lower than number two? I would say lower... Maybe back then, third again. Oh, fifth. Fifth. Quite a fall, yeah. Yeah. Um, 95. Higher or lower? 95. Higher or lower? Higher, surely. Yeah, back up to second. Yeah, they not not do quite well in the 95 World Cup. Yes, they did. uh, Yes, we did, because it was uh, South Africa, wasn't it? Uh, 96 then. Um, Higher or lower than second? Or stick? 96. Uh, lower again. Oh, stick. Second again. <laughs> the 90s weren't bad. There was just what, that one that one yeah. blip. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm probably, yeah, I'm misremembering it, but obviously in the 90s, Ireland were the, I guess, a bit of the Italy. Yeah, of, of, of the it. Times. Yeah. Um, 97 then, higher or lower than second or stick? Mm, I'll go... Try to think. There would have been some players coming on stream. Nineties. Yeah, I'll say stick. Stick. No fourth. Fourth. Rob Wainwright yeah. was captain that year. Yeah, ninety-seven. I mean, that was that was probably that was around. That would have been when I was at uni in Edinburgh. We'd just been going to a few games then. Probably. That was probably around the time of my you know my interest in the game was was picking up. Yeah. So nineteen ninety-eight then. Higher, lower, or stick on four? Uh, well, I mean, we've got the 1999 championship winning team coming, so you'd think that they'd be better than fourth the year before that, so I'll go higher. No, stick, fourth. Stick, fourth. Okay. Fourth, and then 1999, of course, the next time they win it. Yeah. First. The, I mean, that's the interesting thing. We, I mean, I, talked to, I think we've talked about this before in the podcast, and we certainly asked Tom Ings about it. Is, it, it seems odd, given, I think, they, they won it in 84 the Grand Slam in 84, and then they won it in 90. They won the Five Nations Championship in 99, and then nothing for yeah. what... Well, it's been 20... Because it was the 20th anniversary of 1999 last year. I mean, looking back on it, you can kind of see... It's, I mean, it boils down to the fact that we didn't really get to grips with professionalism, I guess. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. You've got to say that it would be must be the systems that were supporting the other teams got systems in place that allowed them to kick on quicker. Um, 
you know, when it, when everything was was roughly equal, we we probably had the players occasionally. Um, but yeah, the the system, the the failure to deal with professionalism. I think yeah, that's definitely that definitely hurt us in the in the long run, and we're only starting to see, I guess, the the fruits of of figuring that out to some extent start to pay off now with academy systems and stuff, bringing a more consistent stream of good players through. Yeah, I suppose it's hard to know though, is it whether or not it's because because Scotland are quite a small rugby playing nation compared to the others, whether it's yeah. th- those the other nations might have made the same mistake structurally, and I think some did, but because they've got a bigger playing pool, yeah, they've maybe it maybe didn't affect them in the same way. Yeah, I think um, the the number the numbers thing hurt hurt as well. I guess you could say that, that a lot of the players previously probably would have come, you know, from the borders, um, and the, the clubs there. Obviously, there's London Scottish and the and and the, the Edinburgh Edinburgh schools and things. But um, yeah, the 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 fact you know the way that the professional era kind of handled the borders, if you like. Um, hasn't hasn't really made the best of the potential resource there because there was actually, you know, potentially a very good supply of of players um, that's maybe still still untapped. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I think it's still something that I think commercially it doesn't make sense because it's a you know you've got a spread a, a pretty spread out population. In yeah. a very rural area, so it's quite hard to know. You know, it's quite hard to pull people from that area together in under one banner because it become. I mean, it's a bit a little like what happened with what's happened with the um, with the Super Six that you have uh, people can't really look beyond it being a Gala or a Melrose team. It's not. Yeah. A, it's not seen as a as a as a side to represent the area. It's still oh well, Melrose got the franchise, not. Yeah, you know Selkirk or Hoyk or whoever whoever else might have been might have been bidding. It's quite hard to pull people together under one banner. Having said that, I think it's that's not to say that you couldn't have a, a pretty decent academy system that draws, like you said, draws on the the. I think generally most of the sides in the borders have got very strong youth sections. Yeah. So there's nothing to say you can't have an academy side. I'm not. It was interesting. The oh, it was. It was um, the interview that Jamie Lyle did with um, who's the back rower for Edinburgh recently? He did the interview with on Rugby Pass. Who is Luke from, Crosby? Luke Crosby was talking about that. That uh, if you're not, uh, it's something I'd always suspected, and people have kind of mentioned to me in passing about how if if you're not, if you're not playing for one of the big teams, that the selectors. Are linked to, so the guys that are in charge of the under 15, 16, 17s, 18s, the, the kind of youth grade teams. If you're not playing for one of those sides, then you are. You have to do more to to to, to get in there. And that was something Luke Crosby was kind. Of, I think one of his ex coaches was saying that is that he was overlooked a lot because he was playing for Livingston RFC, and it's not a traditional club that produces age grade players. So. He wasn't getting game time because the coaches are just picking the players that they know. And I think he, yeah. I think look I, I don't, again I don't know if he's coach or he was saying that that was the feedback he'd had is I'm not going to pick you because I don't know you. Yeah, I don't know, and and that's that. I suppose that's the one drawback if you're not 
if the it's all very well having an academy side or very good youth structures within the borders, but if, if they're not if that's not where the selectors are coming from, there is that element of if you're not if I've not seen you play in week in, week out and I don't know you, I'm not gonna play you, no matter how good you might be, and then the the only ones you get that come through are the freaks like Stuart Hogg and Darcy Graham. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, you've got that. Uh, you've got that problem. I think it's it's maybe that's maybe not even a coaching problem. It's more a talent identification problem. And I think that's one of the things with things like the XRs program and the you know obviously rugby development officers are a huge part of that. And that's something that they've they've obviously tried to put some attention to it. Um, whether that's whether that's working, you'd need someone who's a bit closer to the to the kind of youth development side of things than me to to say. Um, whether the you know whether those issues are still prevalent, it obviously seems like from what uh, Luke Crosby has been saying that it's not a million miles away. Yeah, I mean the inter- probably an, an interesting example is probably Rory Sutherland because you you look at him as a player who's you know he I think he got, got his first call up by Vern Cotter, and I think he got a cap in twenty sixteen, and then I know I know he suffered with with injury and things, but he's you know he's he's come from the borders and he's twenty seven now, yeah, and essentially. Because there was nobody, he's playing because there's nobody else at loose, you know, in that position. Got you know, there's a lack of depth, and I, I, you know, Peter Villas has got hold of him and said, "This guy can scrum, stick him in, stick him in," and as and you know, presumably, he's got the raw materials that that a coach like that can work with, but unless. Unless you get a coach that can see that in somebody, it's maybe harder for. It's easy just to go with the established guys all the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, no coach, no sort of age grade selector is going to pick a team that's fifteen guys that he happens to coach at his school or whatever. But yeah, there's obviously an element of familiarity, picking combinations, things like that. I mean, it's a, a kind of standard problem when you're putting together any representative side, I'd imagine. But yeah, it's harder when. When there's, you know, when they're they're less known quantities, um, they're young guys still starting out. You don't know, you can't tell what sort of player they they might be. Finally, um, Sutherland's a good example. Um, there's there's plenty other kind of late bloomers. I mean, Finn Russell is a prime example of uh, of a guy who didn't really come through the the traditional route. Yeah, and I suppose that's it. It's it, it, but those guys. Are able to come through because they're exceptional. Yeah. So you maybe get less of the guys that could could be very good. It's harder for them, I suppose, to to kind of make themselves make a mark for themselves because they're up against guys that that, that coaches are familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that was nine ninety then. It's, I mean, it, I don't think it was a. I mean, it, it clearly was a one-off because we haven't had a grand slam since. But it, it's, yeah, it, it was kind of a per- when you read the grudge, it does come across a bit of a perfect storm of everything. Yeah, kind of they I had the players, they had the coaches. Yeah, and I mean, they did get uh, probably a decent amount of the refereeing decisions as well, um, so that you know the ref wasn't a, a problem. Um, the it seemed like quite a windy day. I think they probably made the best of the conditions, and yeah, it just. I think, I think the crowd must have played a huge part because they would, 
that energy would would have kept them going. And yeah, it just uh, as you say, a bit of a, a bit of a perfect storm. Everything just came together on came together on the day. It makes a nice it makes a nice story, but perhaps um, perhaps is is almost a bit misrepresentative. Um, although you know, there's a lot of guys that that um, there's a lot of guys that do say that that was a that was a pretty good team. I mean, I think they went to New Zealand on tour the year after and came pretty close. Um, well, they went that so, summer. Yeah, they went that summer. So they were thirty-one sixteen and twenty-one eighteen. Yeah, so I mean that's decent results against the against the All Blacks. Yeah. Um, well, I can't remember who was. It's in the grudge. It's talked about is the fact that that's that's why they got Ian McGeeken. Well, you know they got Jim Telfer back, didn't they? Because he'd been coaching yeah. them, and they they I can't remember if it was Finn Calder or JJ went and said, "We think we've got a really good team this year. Will you come back?" Which is which? I don't know. That sounds like the kind of this kind of thing you'd do in a back alley, kind of paying money to somebody to come and then flog you. <laughs> yeah, yeah give my an envelope for you. Yeah, here's an envelope. Take me back to yours and whip me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's yeah, I, I, it's hard to see Scotland winning one again. Although I, it's not unthinkable that, you know. You get a couple of players in the yeah, right positions, yeah, and it could happen again. But I think we probably need to accept that it's not something that's going to happen consistently for Scotland because that's not. Yeah. it never has. Yeah, I mean, you look you, you look at this year's tournament, for example. Um, that game again, that game against Ireland could easily have won it. That game against England was a bit of a lottery, but yeah, a couple of knock-ons or. Um, you know the that that uh, fumble from Hoggy under the sticks doesn't happen. You know that that game was that game was there for the taking. Suddenly beat France, Italy, and you know, and then Mark Dalton's getting the lawyers out because the government are denying him a Grand Slam. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, it, it, it goes to show you, but you've got to get all of that stuff's got to go right in every in every game. Yeah, to, to get there, or, or at least enough of it to get you over the line in each game. Um, a lot of stuff went right for for Scotland in this in the in the tournament. Not you know it wasn't perfect, but there, it was a lot a lot better than it has been at, at times. And that you know that's 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 still not enough. Um, we do have to accept that we're a little bit behind some of these countries. Um, we do have the talent, but it's learning to to use that talent and make sure that it it's kind of it's well prepared. Yeah, and I suppose it's the the level below the talent is a big drop off it's not like you know you've got you can kind of you know lose a Benny Vunipolo and then have a Tom Curry coming in yeah who although exactly. you know it's not a like for like swap but it's still a quality player for a quality player I mean we you know we've got we're all right at number eight but we're not we're not stacked yeah. in the same way that other countries are and same at 10 you know you look at number you look look at our choice of 10s you know, Finn Russell, Adam Hastings, and then after that, we're down to poor, poor old Donkey Weir. Yeah, go and vote for him on that uh, Worcester Warriors poll. By the way, of the greatest Worcester Warriors fly half of all time. I think he's yeah, he's he's winning at the moment. Yeah, keep it that way, guys. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, th- I mean, it's a, a a good look back in nineteen ninety. I don't know whether you probably it's if you haven't watched the game, go and watch it now. See if you agree with us. Let us know. Yeah, it's good fun. It's it's a good yeah it's a good game to watch. I mean, I think you know the last kind of thing I'd say is it's interesting that Scotland 
have now talked about having you know relentlessness is one of the things they talk about now in defense yeah and, and you you, you honestly wonder the the Vern, the Vern Cotter game plan that that he went back to when he took over Scotland you've got to think it was based on probably watching that bit that on YouTube and some videos of, of games of that era because it's very the kind of when he when the people talk about the fast rucking kind of little bit of offloading playing at pace back in your fitness not not too much emphasis on set piece that's you know that's that game in a nutshell really for, from Scotland's point of view and it worked against the dominant team at the time yeah and and that's what the Gregor Townsend has said after the World Cup as he went and he's basically drove out to Melrose Did- and spent time with Jim Telfer who probably has yeah. said you need to be relentless in defence and that's I, that's what that's said, I, I told this to Vern <laughs> why haven't you been here yet yeah yeah this is what I tell everybody that comes around. There's no magic to this. Just defend well. Yeah, yeah. That's the big secret. I kind of, I think we, I think if you maybe what you could do. There's definitely a Lord of the Rings parody in here somewhere with um, Jim Telfer as kind of some sort of grumpy Gandalf. <laughs> I should put my mind to it. Yes. Um, Christmas. Save it for Christmas. Yes, that's a good one. We'll try and recreate it. Um, that's that's it for this week. Um, we hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back next week. Like I said, we're going to do a combined best Scotland combined Calcutta Cup winning uh, 15. So I, it's essentially, I think, going to be 1990, possibly two. There's definitely 2000. There's a couple in the mid 2000s. We've got 20. There's definitely 2018, and then we'll we'll just, we'll we'll have a ruling on 2019 as well. And I'll post the dates up on Twitter as well in the week so you can see the squads that you the teams you're selecting from. I'm going to make it starting 15 only. No subs. We'll not do a bench, we'll just do a starting 15 only. Otherwise it gets gets too tricky. Um so there'll be lots lots to choose from. It's gonna be interesting. I think particularly at Scrum Scrum Half's gonna be interesting, I think. Yeah, that'll be a some fairly straightforward in another position, but Scrum Half, I think, will be particularly interesting. Um but for the moment it is goodbye from me and goodbye from Rory. Goodbye. Cheers for that, Rory.